Not too long ago, we spoke to a graduate of the academy who is starting a career in stone carving. Then we spoke to an experienced faceter and pondered bad design last month. So I thought it would be apt if we this month speak to a designer and jewellery artist who has really taken the medium of gemstones and the technique to carve them in a new unique direction, taking us on a journey to question what they are and can be used for. She's an Estonian jewellery designer, self-taught gemstone carver and contemporary artist with a fantastic oeuvre of work with whom I will discuss the journey to becoming a jeweller, her adaptation of traditional techniques and future endeavours. So without further ado, I very much would like to welcome Julia Maria Kunap. Thank you for joining me, Julia. Thank you. The first question, Julia, to start, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do? I'm a jewellery artist. I, I think I can say that. I make unique pieces. in. Um, most traditional uh, jewellery uh, materials, which is the uh, gemstones and precious metals, like gold and silver, mostly gold. And, well, I try to find my own way in this. And you are an art graduate and a graduate from the Estonian Academy of Arts, so the jewellery art department. What drew you to the artistic field in the first place and then in specific to jewellery later on? I guess it was you know, rather simple. You know, everybody likes to draw. Or not, maybe not everybody, but most kids like to draw. So um, I guess I was drawing and making things all my childhood. I went to art schools and you know, drawing classes, art schools, and, uh, and it just um, continued. So it was... Uh, I had a few choices, a few different ones. One was chemistry, one was uh, art, and the, the third one was uh, aviation to become a pilot. But uh, it was my choice was easy because uh, the exams to the art academy were the first ones. So I got into the art academy, so I dropped the other options. That's interesting. If the aviation would have been first, maybe you would have been a pilot. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Or, or chemist, scientist or something. And then the step sort of from other artistic mediums to thinking about jewellery and, and then perhaps these the smaller objects. Do you know what pulled you in that direction? Yeah, it's just, I think I've always been good in crafts. Um, I'm not into, I have, I have never been into jewellery like a decorative way. You know, like um, I'm not super... Um, a feminine, you know, like a fashionista or you know, nothing like that. And I think it kind of felt secure for me, you know, kind of safe uh, solution because I love sculpture very much. But I, th I thought that uh, sculpture was too difficult, also like physically too difficult and too abstract. And so I, I had no idea about contemporary jewelry. But I, I had to say in advance, you know, when we had these preparation courses for exams, I had to say, like, what uh, what do I want to study? And so I just asked, like, can I can I come back? Can I say it to you the next day? And and then I during the night, I thought, uh, I went back and asked, like, can you study jewelry? She said, oh, OK, metal art then, <laughs> metal department then, so. 
So your work has featured a lot of gems and you are a self-taught gem cutter. Now what drew you to then use the medium of stone for your work and how do you choose maybe these gemstones you then work with? I had extremely good uh, education from the academy, from um, Professor Godri Mel. She had uh, made us very good courses of um, every possible technique, you know, starting from filigree and uh, ending with platinum. Giovanni Corvaia gave us a platinum workshop also. There was like so many things. So we also had a gem cutting course and a practical thing. We had to cut gems. But cabochons, the cabochons and uh, and flat plates or something. So it wasn't much, but it was just what you needed, you know, to get the um, to get the taste of it, you know. And we had very good, I think, very good gemology course. So also we didn't learn everything, you know, but uh, but we had the idea how to uh, identify gems and uh, what's the you know meaning or what's the also the yeah. Also, the esoteric meaning behind them, you know, how's the history? So um, I think that's what a good education is: that you get a taste, and if you have uh, interest, or you search forward. And uh, and I think I had already, yeah, graduated my MA, and I think it was like five years later. Something I I got into stone. Um, into stones but it's it's an kind of like an anecdotic story because I was given a ring uh, during my studies my friend gave me a ring as a present and I, I had a dream a few months later that the stone was melting you know it was a huge uh, synthetic sapphire I still have the ring it's a huge stone uh, but I had the dream that the stone was melting so and about 10 years later I just saw the ring in my jewelry box and I thought that wow but actually is it like possible to make something like that and so I thought that wow but why not but uh, you know as I knew a little bit of stone cutting I, I knew that you have to use the whole lap you cannot just work on the edge or something because you will ruin the lap so I understood that the um, I cannot go somewhere to a stone cutting studio and ask their machines, you know. So I thought that what's the easiest way to try it out, you know. So it started from there. And then you use a selection of gemstones in your work. They're often relatively large. Is that a criteria that you use to choose the gemstones? Do you want to work quite large? Which which gemstones have you been using most, and are you enjoying to work in most? I've been um, yeah, I've been mostly using for faceting. I've been using quartz and always like amethyst, citrine, uh, uh, smoky quartz, you know, rock crystal. And uh, and the reason is very simple because uh, uh, it's easy to find big crystals, and the raw material is uh, relatively cheap. It is. Because when you make a, make contemporary jewelry, and you know, otherwise the pieces will be so small, you don't really see them. It's it's more interesting. It gives more freedom to work with the larger 
write your pieces. But I'm uh, I hope to move forward because because uh, it's not that easy actually. It's not that even in Europe, you know, that you go to Ida Roberstein where it's uh, the center of gem cutting, but it's it's very difficult to find uh, rough stones for a. Uh, for somebody who comes from outside, from a, for an outsider, so it's. Um, I think I now have some uh, dealers, some Facebook friends, or dealers, and I see their stones, the roughs that they sell, and uh, and I get more into uh, other stones as well, you know, like topazes or something. But but it's also there's a point why I use quartz uh, is that. Um, it doesn't have cleavage that much, you know. It's um, it's the structure is so so good that I can make this uh, drops or this dripping uh, parts. Um, I'm not sure I can do something like this in uh, uh, tourmaline or you know, like they have to be different design. But um, but it's uh, let's see, let's see. And so, yeah, I wanted to go on. In fact, yeah, the equipment to work with stone is a little bit different than, for example, working with metal. Are there any sort of techniques or pieces of equipment that you are now most fascinated by? In general, there are two things. There's the handle, the flex shaft and flat lap because uh, you can make facets or you can, you can make cabochons as well. Uh, these two things, and I think now in the, in the, like um, in the past twenty years, 10, 20 years, there have been uh, there have come so many new uh, things to the market. Like all these uh, sponges, for example, that uh, have this uh, diamond um, cover. Or these are the best things to make any any soft shape, you know, any soft form. You, know. you cannot really use a machine to take away the material, but to make a big or whatever, you know, soft form, it's always, it has to be done by hand. There's no other way. You know, it's, uh, it's from gemstones to large boats. It's done by hand, actually. All this, uh, to have a perfect curve, it's done by hand. This is the principle, I think, uh, that one should follow. What else? It's possible to start with very little. It's, uh, it's especially if people start it as a the, if you want to be creative, you want to be creative. You don't know what's what comes out. Being creative means that you don't have the um, you don't know the result. It can fail, and I don't think many people can afford uh, to put very much money into uh, some things that they can fail, and maybe there's no money coming back, or uh, you know, it's, um, maybe they won't uh, cut another stone. But I think now it's it's very easy to start from um, like very easily, you know, not not to have much equipment, a, a flex shaft, a few uh, diamond bits, and then the sponges. You can cut these sponges, glue them with a super glue. To um, that's what I do actually. I cut the I cut the uh, discs from the sponges, and I glue them on rubber discs. You know, the small rubber discs. And attach them to to flex shaft, and they make very good um, carving tools. You know, you discover things, but and and when you know what you what you're doing already, then you know what you need for your next thing. You know, you, you be creative. Yeah, 
And so if anyone's getting started with, with sort of learning this from scratch, do you, is there any books or, or any resources that you recommend to review? Or is it really a matter of get some bits together and try and start going? There are some um, maybe faceting, yes, there are a lot of books, you know, but the but it's, it's very much about stone cutting is the experience. Now with a good this precision machines and um, uh, the development of a faceting machine over the centuries has been how to hold a stone in the right positions so that the facet meets a lap at the same uh, angle every time. And so it's easy, you know, you have a faceting diagram where all the angles are written, all the, um, indexes are written and you follow the diagram and you, you cut it, you go finer and finer and then you polish your stone. So it's easy. If you follow the instruction, you will get a stone and and works like that. But then there are thousands of small things that just come uh, with experience. What's the pressure with a stone? What's the, how it's still st stuck on the top so that it won't fly away? How how to avoid scratches. They don't always come from um, some uh, dust or impurities. They come from out of nowhere, you know, and, uh, and which uh, pace to use in which, which speed the machine should, you should run the machine. So that all comes with the experience. And uh, I think that that can easily take 10 years. <laughs> In my interpretation of your work, I feel your, your work sort of challenges the materiality of gemstones. There is this sort of a bit of a trick element to it because they look molten, but they are, of course, solid or they look like they've bent, but they are, of course, rigid materials. So is that something that is important in your work or is that an interpretation you are happy other people have or... I think it's a, it's fun to make some pieces that you that you think don't exist or you haven't seen this before. So kind of uh, it's interesting to go go through this process and to make something visible that wasn't visible before. You know, so um, it doesn't necessarily have to be this trick. It's not the trick itself that much. Just yeah, to make some crazy stuff. <laughs> Yeah, and in a way challenging what others think or what might be impossible and then pushing that. Yes, uh, yes. And, uh, and for example, there are some um, boundaries, of course. That you, yeah, challenges. Like, for example, it's, um, it's very hard. It's almost impossible to make the border uh, between materiality and the void softer. There's always kind of a hard and very certain border. And so only maybe a, a piece of cotton, you know, cotton ball where we didn't see. But then it's soft. You cannot really, okay, you can say you wear it, but it's not the, it's not the same thing. So, but how, how can you kind of, uh, how, can, how can you make the material so that it vanishes in the air, you know, kind of becomes invisible. So that's what I would have tried to do with my nephrite pieces. But the brush stroke uh, really, and at the same time that it's not like a, a sharp as a knife blade. Or did you do you make lots of models and tests, or when you settle for a piece, or are you quite quick? I think I observe. You know, 
it doesn't really matter if I take another material to make a drop, you know, and I, I, instead of that, I, I can carve the drop in uh, stone as a first place. There's, there's no much difference. To understand the nature of a drop, <laughs> you cannot even take photos, okay? You can go through uh, photos on the internet, but it's more like more like observing because uh, to have the, to get the essence of it, you have to get the the parents, the image of a drop. It's not that much how it how it is, you know, physically or on photograph, but just to have the impression, to have the same impression. But for example, um, sometimes in some surfaces, I mean, this onyx uh, uh, water ripples. On the first stone, I started polishing it, and I found that. It's absolutely not, the, everything was lost because it's the even if the water surface itself is polished and you know, it has some kind of um, yeah, luster on water, but it doesn't match the luster on onyx. So I left the mat and the and it, it's totally different, but it works in this way. And do you see a sort of continuation in, in your pieces as you continue making them? the ideas in different shapes, different materials, is there sort of a growth in the experimentation or are they all just different takes on the same starting point? I hope there's growth. Of course I hope there's growth. With some new things, in, uh, when you see the jewelry piece, it doesn't, it doesn't seem that there's a big change in between like two pieces or something that seem to be similar, but it's in, sometimes it's a huge change in the, it's a huge technical challenge. It takes, uh, yeah, it takes like new equipment to, to make this water ripples or this or that. You need to, when I have discovered a new method or, you know, yeah, not discovered, but invented a new method, how to do this or that, then that's the fun part to make variations on it. So, because every stone is still different. They're all unique pieces, every stone and every particular stone um, is different. So it's fun. Uh, every next stone is better anyway and kind of, you develop and uh, and if I get uh, tired of it, I move on, you know, on to some other things. And um, because the stone cutting so repetitive, so there's like um, there's always time to time to think of new things and new ideas. So I have new drawings and then the, like ideas for years ahead. Yeah, so by being in the process yourself, you get new ideas. Would you ever consider taking on someone who does some of the work for you? Or is, in fact, doing the work very much part of the process? Oh, it's a constant. I constantly think about it. I still do everything myself, but maybe it's not that important in a way. In general, I don't think it's like necessary that every facet is faceted by me or something. There are processes, there are steps that I would um, love to be in control of. Maybe this uh, pre-shaping, the pre-cut, kind of what will be, how it will be. But then there are certain steps that can easily be done. 
by somebody else. But I haven't, I, yeah, it's difficult. I think it's also difficult to find apprentices. In general, sort of, what do you think, we kind of touched upon this already, but just maybe briefly, what do you think really inspires your work? Because you mentioned you had a dream. Does that happen a lot, that you dream something and and then make what you dream, or does it come from other places? Yeah, I, I try to uh, find uh, unconscious inspiration to my work. I don't like to uh, uh, kind of um, construct the ideas. Yeah, I try to avoid the conscious process. And then you are represented by galleries and have won prizes. What do you feel are sort of the best channels for a contemporary jewelry artist like yourself to get your work out there? I've been really lucky. Yeah, with the prizes and everything, I've been really lucky. But the, but that was my way how to start. You know, I, I think when I, when I finished my studies and when I graduated, to send my work to jewelry exhibitions and when I was accepted you know it's already a link, um, line in your CV and and from one selected exhibition maybe somebody invites you to another and uh, so that's how you how you start building your uh, network. What do you think is sort of the most challenging part if you look at your journey as a jewelry designer what are the challenges to think about when you start a career like this? I think it is the uncertainty. People often think or have this romantic feeling about uh, being creative and that I, it's something that our artistic life is about being creative, which is true. You have to be creative, but it means you have to be creative all the time. It's a, it's a challenge. It's not a, that much of an advantage. That's one part, and the other is the uncertainty, unstable income. Well, I was I was lucky. I didn't. Uh, I, I was not responsible uh, for anybody, you know. So, so I was I was lucky in the beginning, and, and I didn't have um, expensive hobbies <laughs> except jewelry. <laughs> but the, but just the yes, the instability. And have you found any methods of managing this so that you don't feel overwhelmed by it? It's a good question. It's a, it's a think that's the biggest challenge an artist actually has. You know, it's a, of course, it's the challenges inside an artist, you know, how to, the artistic choices and others. Uh, but that's about finding himself or herself. It's just the journey inside and, uh, and letting everything else go. That's the fun part. And, uh, and I think these other challenges they, uh, of the outside world, they're normal. You can do, many artists can do without them. You know, it's like, a, sorry, but like being a circus animal uh, that... Uh, they they only do their things because they're starving. And that's terrible, but it, it is the same way with artists too, I think. I, I know it's uh, it's rude to say, but uh, but in a certain level, I think I don't see many many millionaires out there making great art, you know. 
And so it's uh, it's uh, it's both the inner and outer need. And when you continue with the same thing, uh, you become so good in it, or uh, it opens the inner need goes so big that uh, you don't really know anything else how to. Or you're, you, there's no other things you as good as 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 in your path that you've taken. That's why you continue, yeah, to move on. I mean, in a way, what you're saying is that the pull of, of the inner journey that you're on warrants the external pressures and that you will somehow find ways and maybe there's a bit of trust there. And Yeah, I think it's uh, the, the trust in yourself. It just builds up with time and with positive experiences. That's why it's good to send your things out there in juried exhibitions. And, and that's what people don't see is that the rejections Everybody gets rejected, you know, for every positive answer, maybe there's like four or five uh, rejections. It's it just move on, you know, it's uh, it's normal. Yeah, it's really good to hear from someone who we see is very successful. I have one last question uh, for you. So what's in store for the future? You already said that there might be some new materials on the horizon. Is there anything else you're working on that we can look forward to seeing in the near future? Yeah, I think new materials. If I if I get a chance to, to work with new materials, that's really fun. Because I think of the materials, the price for one uh, rough crystal can be like 10 times higher, 20 times higher. So it's um, it's a difference. And you're also currently in a show. Maybe we can mention this as well if people want to go and see it. Until when and where is it happening? Uh, the name of the show is uh, A Matter of Time. And it takes place in Stockholm, in Platina Gallery. And it's on till 26th of February. So if you happen to go there, have a look. If you if you're not that close, uh, take a look at their website. It's platina.se. And I I will actually I will publish a newspaper. It, it's a it's a catalog, but in a form of a newspaper. A matter of, matter of time, and that will be out. Um, I think in in a few weeks. So maybe from my Facebook or Instagram page, you can find it. Working as an independent jewelry designer and maker can be full-on and pushing the boundaries of a medium might seem like a big ask, but Julia Maria shows that it's possible and her inspirational work really captures the imaginations and stimulates a debate. For sharing your insights into your practice and work, I would like to thank you a lot, Julia Maria. We are really incredibly grateful for your time and very much look forward to seeing what you do next. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Sophie. So next month I'll be joined by another guest. So watch this space to find out who it is. But for now, this was Sophie Booms for the BAJ podcast episode titled The Poetry of Carved Gemstones with Julia Maria Kunap. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.